Good morning, everyone. Welcome to OT with DA. We are in chapter 67 today. And what that means is that there are only, including today, seven chapters left. And so we are well and truly at the very end of our 75-day reading challenge. Of course, it's been a little more than 75 days because of my transition to Australia, but still roughly 75 days. Great to see everybody signing on. Instagram Live. Hello, everyone. Welcome, welcome. Somebody says, good afternoon. Well, it's morning where I'm at, and I woke up this morning, and it was very windy, but at least so far, no rain, which is a good sign. In fact, I even saw some sun when I woke up this morning. So for those of you that prayed, thank you for praying. Uh, we don't know, of course, what the future holds. In fact, that's actually what today's chapter is about uncertainty about the future, and um, looking forward to getting into that with you all. So welcome. Hey, Hannah. Great to see you. You're probably in Italy somewhere. Wonderful. Cheryl, hello. Stone Doctor, hello. Grace, Faith, Hope, Love 3, hello. Sylvia says, hallelujah, no rain. Amen. Amen. It's like I was saying yesterday, wouldn't it be wonderful if if the areas where we need rain, we could just transport it. And the areas where we don't, we could just move it along to the areas that do need it. So I'm, I'm right at the end, not only of OT with DA, but uh, I'm getting toward the end of my teaching at Arise here in Australia. It's been uh, almost three weeks of teaching. I'll teach today. Uh, we finished up church history yesterday. Today and tomorrow, I'll be teaching on Christian apologetics, basically faith and reason how to give an answer for why it is that we believe what we believe as Christians. Um, so yeah, I'm really looking forward to today's class and then tomorrow. And then, that'll be Friday, I will preach on Sabbath. Actually, I preach Friday night at a program that uh, we started about oh, five years ago here in Kingscliff, maybe six years ago, titled Fry Yay, which I've, I've always liked that title. I think it's a great name, Fry Yay, Yay for Youth and Young Adults. So I'll speak at that. And then Sabbath morning, I'll do uh, an OT with DA, then I'll preach. Then I'm done teaching at Arise Australia, which is amazing. Three straight weeks and um, great class, but they've got a new instructor next week. And they're actually kind of down toward the end of their class. I think there's only maybe four weeks left of the whole program, four or five weeks. And then I'll take vacation. Woohoo! Well, not not immediately, actually. I have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday that we will be finishing up OT with DA. Bam! I can't even believe I'm saying that. Let me say it again. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, my Wednesday, uh, we'll be finishing up OT with DA. And the plan presently, I don't have it right in front of me here, is to the day after we do chapter 73, which is the final chapter of the book, to have a kind of recap, to do our drawing, and... Yeah, so that's that's the plan. Um, I've got at least two more guests lined up. In fact, I think it's going to be two more guests lined up um, because honestly, I want to I want to spend some time here with my people at the end, right? Not not. I mean, I love having guests. Sam was great, and Quentin was great, and Robbie was great, and we're still going to get at least one more, maybe two more guests, um, but then that's the finish of OT with DA. And then on that Thursday, 
I don't know the date, but that's the beginning of eight days of vacation. Woohoo! I cannot wait. I'm fired up. And we're going to go on a little road trip with some friends. Actually, Sam. Sam that was on the program. Sam and his wife, Katie, and their two little daughters, uh, Coco and Milan. We'll be going on a road trip together. And we are um, trying to figure out right now where we're going to go. And <laughs> it's kind of, you know, it's fun when you have like a week and you're where should we go? Where should we go? What should we do? And right now there is controversy in the camp. Should we go along the coast? Should we go north along the coast? Should we go south along the coast? Or should we just point the car due west and go inland? We haven't decided yet. So hopefully we reach a consensus there. Very much looking forward to that. I've actually got some books I can't wait to read. I want to, this is going to be kind of a weird vacation for me, a weird holiday, uh, because I'm not going rock climbing, and I'm not going fly fishing, and I'm not going backpacking. We're just going to go hang out with friends, which is not a normal vacation for us, but I'm sure we'll find our way into some adventures, and I'm really looking forward. I've got like two or three books that I'm just really fired up about, and I want to get started on those. Then, at the end of vacation, uh, I'll be speaking at the North New South Wales Big Camp, uh, in the young adult tent there with my good friend Blair Lemke. So yeah, it's been very busy, and then I'm going to get a little rest, and then it'll be busy again, then back to the United States. So that's my plan. I don't know the future, right? I don't know if all of that's going to happen the way that that uh, I just described it. I hope it does. I hope we have an epic trip, and I hope camp meeting goes well, and I, I hope that class today goes well. But part of what our chapter is about today in fact, a large part of what our chapter is about today is not knowing what the future holds. And so our chapter is titled Ancient and Modern Sorcery, an unusual chapter, really, in, in the flow of Patriarchs and Prophets because the majority of our chapters are narrative-based, right? They're following a flow, a plot line. And this is a departure from that where we kind of dive into the biblical theological material or the theological uh, backdrop for Saul's visit to the witch at Endor. And I really appreciate the fact that this chapter is here because if you just read the, the account there in 1 Samuel, it is at least a little bit ambiguous. I think there are enough internal cues to alert us to the fact that this is not an authentic visit uh, from Samuel. But if we then look at the larger picture, it becomes really obvious that what's going on here is basically a satanic, not basically, it's a satanic deception. And so I'm really thankful, actually, that this chapter is here. I read over it twice this morning, and without further ado, let's get into this. Again, welcome everybody to, welcome to everybody on Instagram Live, and uh, we're going to pray and be into chapter 67 of our OT with DA Reading Challenge. Father in heaven, we love you, we thank you, we lean into you. Help us, Father, today to, to really lean into you, to lean into the idea that if we don't know the future, we can at least know him and love him and worship him who does know the future. So, Father, in many ways, the, the future to us is behind a veil, as the chapter says, behind a barrier. But Father, we don't have to know what's over there because you know what's over there. You know what the future holds. Father, what we need to know is who holds the future. And so help us to trust that, to lean into that, to for that to be satisfactory for us. And uh, Lord, we live in a world right now that is being in various ways and in various contexts kind of carried away with spiritualism. 
Help us, Father, to get our truth, capital T truth, from the text of Scripture. And we love you and thank you, so help us to learn what we can today from the theological background of the story of Saul's visit to the witch at Endor. Uh, We love you and thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's do this. Chapter 67, Ancient and Modern Sorcery. I'm just going to open my Bible up here to 1 Samuel. Let's get to the story there in case we have to reference it, which we may, of Saul's visit. That is in chapter, what is it, 28? Yep, that looks about right. Is this it? Yeah, that's it. Chapter 28. 1 Samuel chapter 28. All right, I'm going to start, as we often do, by reading the first paragraph. It says, the scripture account of Saul's visit to the woman of Endor has been a source of perplexity to many students of the Bible. There are some who take the position that Samuel was actually present at the interview with Saul, but the Bible itself furnishes sufficient ground for a contrary conclusion. If, as claimed by some, Samuel was in heaven, he must have been summoned from there either by the power of God or by that of Satan. None can believe for a moment that Satan had the power to call the holy prophet of God from heaven to honor the incantations of an abandoned woman, nor can we conclude that God summoned him to the witch's cave, for the Lord had already refused to communicate with Saul by dreams, by Urim, or by prophets. That's described in 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 6. These were God's own appointed mediums or agencies of communication, and he did not pass them over to deliver the message through the agent of Satan. Okay, first observation here is that, again, and I know I've made this point many times, Ellen White is a fantastically clear writer. Like, her economy of words and the way that she communicates, I I just love it. It really resonates with me, and maybe it's because I've been reading it now for two decades, more than two decades, but I I just love the idea here that, that in basically one paragraph, she eviscerates the idea that what took place in that cave could have actually been Samuel. I mean, she's just like, yeah, the account itself, as she says, furnishes, which I thought was a great use of the word furnishes. Let me see if I can find that here. Um, The Bible itself furnishes sufficient ground for a contrary conclusion. And then she basically says, look, you got two options here. Either, Either in some way, this woman was able to drag Samuel down, you know, like, to, to surmount and prevail over the power of God, presumably, to, to drag Samuel down, or that somehow Satan was able to do that. And she's like, no, definitely not. And then she does a really good job of citing uh, 1 Samuel 28, 6, that says that the reason that Saul went to the witch of Endor is because he wasn't getting communication from God in any other way. And as we've already noted, but it's important for us to remind ourselves, the reason that that channel is closed is not because God has initiated the closure, or as we talked about yesterday, the occlusion, it's because, it's because Saul has done that. Saul has occluded uh, this channel of communication with God, and all God has done here is honored Saul's consistent, persistent, rebellious choice. And uh, so now the idea that, that God is going to, you know, detour around what he was already doing, not speaking by the prophets, not speaking by the Urim, and now he's going to use this thing that he has expressly forbidden, which is the point she makes in the next paragraph. Let's read that. The message itself is sufficient evidence of its origin. 
Its object was not to lead Saul to repentance, but to urge him on to ruin. We talked about that yesterday, how Satan plays both sides of the equation. And if you haven't, by the way, I'm a little bit behind. I'm two days behind on uploading to YouTube. That's just because I've been very busy. I mean, my day yesterday was intense. And I didn't get home last night until late. And then I, the last thing I did last night before I went to bed was help my son edit uh, an essay that he's working on for college. So my day started yesterday at like five o'clock in the morning, 5.30 in the morning, and I went to sleep at 10, and I did not stop. I, I did come home briefly, but yeah, it, it actually takes a little while to get the videos uploaded, so I'm two days behind, but today I will upload those two videos, maybe even this one, so maybe three videos. Anyway, so so hopefully you were able to see that. Um, the, the occlusion, as we're mentioning here, the closure is on Saul's part, not on God's part. God is responsive. He's not initiating that closure. And uh, let's see, it says, uh, da, 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 da. it says, this was, oh, yeah, that's what we were talking about, how Satan played both sides of the equation, right? And that's what we talked about yesterday, which will be up again. Uh, this is not the work of God, but of Satan. Furthermore, the act of Saul in consulting a sorceress is cited in scripture as one reason why he was rejected by God. And then she quotes 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verses 13 and 14. And here it is. Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against Yahweh, because he did not keep the word of Yahweh. And also because he consulted a medium for guidance, for guidance, but he did not inquire of Yahweh, therefore he killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Now, let's just remind ourselves that when the Bible says here that God killed him, this is a sort of larger way of describing that God takes, in some ultimate sense, responsibility for almost everything that happens in the universe, everything that happens in the world. We know good and well, based on our study yesterday, that it was Samuel, excuse me, Saul. I think I actually said Samuel a couple of times earlier when I need, need, meant Saul, so you know who I'm talking about. Saul himself ended his life. He was guilty, as we saw yesterday, of self-murder, or what we call suicide. He fell on his own sword. He asked his armor bearer to kill him. His armor bearer refused to lay his hand on the Lord's anointed, even though he was rebellious and entirely disconnected from God at that point. So, so Saul did that job himself. He felt he killed himself. He ended his own life, self-murder. And yet, when that is told by the author of First Chronicles here in chapter 10, it says that God killed him. Well, only in the most broad, generous, pliable sense could we say that God killed Saul, because in actual fact, Saul killed Saul, right? But here again, the Old Testament prophets very often depict God as having sort of ultimate responsibility, absolute responsibility over the world, and so that actions are attributed to him that he himself was not the active agent in, but he allowed or permitted to occur. And the larger point here is, is that what the author, what the chronicler says, what the author of First Chronicles says is, one of the reasons that Saul died, that he was killed, that he was rejected, was precisely because he went to the witch at Endor, which cannot, which must mean then, right? That, that cannot be harmonized with the idea that God is somehow sanctioning this, that God is sanctioning this visit, and therefore that this really is Samuel. Now, the, the text itself, let's be clear, the actual narrative itself in 1 Samuel chapter 28 never expressly says that it was a counterfeit, that it was a, a deception, and that it was Satan that was causing this to look like Samuel. It never says that. But we are, we are invited we are encouraged, I would say we are required by Bible students to pull the evidence together about what was happening here, the larger sort of theological framework, 
the systematic telling of scripture on the nature of death and the nature of sorcery and necromancy, and we are to make our own reasoned, biblically informed conclusions, which is exactly what she does in this chapter. And I think she does, frankly, a masterful job of it. Um, just after she quotes 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verses 13 and 14, she says, Here is distinctly stated that Saul inquired of the familiar spirit, not of the Lord. He did not communicate with Samuel, the prophet of God, but through the sorceress he held conversation with Satan. Satan could not present the real Samuel, but he did present a counterfeit that served his purpose of deception. Let me just use a quick illustration here. Remember that all the way back when Moses... Uh, was was met by God at the burning bush, and God said, throw your staff down. And he threw his staff down, and it became like a snake, and then he picked it up by the tail at God's command. He also then placed his hand to his chest, and it became leprous, and then he put it back, and it, it was healed. The leprosy went away. So God said, these are signs. Use these signs when you come into the court of Pharaoh, because there's going to be, you know, understandable skepticism about, you know, letting all of these slaves go for a feast for several days in the wilderness. So when Moses came into the court, he, you know, when, when Pharaoh was resisting, who is God that I should obey him? I don't know who God is. Of course, he did know who Yahweh was, as we've already discussed, because he was familiar with the history of Egypt and the story of Joseph, who was basically single-handedly responsible as a conduit for God for the salvation, right? The, the salvation of Egypt. Nevertheless, when Pharaoh and his magicians expressed skepticism, Moses, as God had commanded, throws his staff down, and it becomes a, a snake. Well, the, the magicians are like, yeah, big deal. Yeah, we can do that too. And they throw their staff down, and it becomes a snake. Now, the narrative never says, oh, this was a deception. This was Satan caused... It doesn't say that. You are supposed to intuit that, right? As an intelligent, informed reader of the text, you're supposed to know well, that's not the power of God. That's the power of God's enemy. That's another, it's either trickery, cunning, or some other supernatural power. And Ellen White will actually deal with that. The idea that, well, sometimes it's just trickery, right? Like magic, sleight of hand. And then other times there actually is a supernatural power at play. But my point here is simply this. When the narrative in 1 Samuel chapter 28 doesn't expressly say, oh yeah, this was satanic. Well, the Bible doesn't always say, oh yeah, this was expressly satanic. It just tells you what, what happened, and then with the larger sort of picture and portfolio of what scripture, scripture says about a given topic, you're supposed to go, hey, wait a minute, that can't be what it appears to be. And in case there was any, you know, indecisiveness about that, the chronicler tells us that this was one of the reasons that Saul's life was ended so ignominiously, was because he sought a sorcerer for guidance against the express teaching of God through Moses in Torah. Okay, so then um, she starts to sort of form her argument, and, and she's already begun the argument, but the argument's a really, I think, tightly um, argued sort of case against the idea that this could have possibly been Samuel. I find it to be not only convincing, but conclusive. And uh, so then she, in the next paragraph, she makes this really important statement that really sort of sets the tone for not only the rest of the chapter, but also for our understanding of sorcery, necromancy, wizardry, communion with the dead, etc. She says, nearly all forms of ancient sorcery and witchcraft were founded upon a belief in communion with the dead. Exactly. And that then becomes the sort of fulcrum on which the whole idea of necromancy or wizardry proceeds, right? That in some way, 
the dead in some supernatural point of access can communicate with us through these mediums, sorcerers, necromancers. And then she quotes Isaiah 20, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 8, verse 9, when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter, right, kind of do their incantations, they're almost kind of speaking in tongues type, uh, you know, uh, prattle, whatever it is they do or say, should not a people seek their God? And then this great open-ended question, which is really kind of an LOL question, in my opinion, it's a laugh out loud moment. Should not, should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? I really like that. I think that is so, it's so pointed and so well communicated. Like, why are you going to the dead on behalf of those that are alive? Why not go to the living, the living God, the God of Israel, the God of Scripture, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? So we don't go to the dead to learn about the living. We go to the living God to learn about the living. And so uh, I, I love that there, Isaiah 8, 19, and 20. Okay, then she describes how this idea of communion with the dead and then also attached to that sort of ancestor worship or the deification of the dead is really, in many ways, the foundation of idolatry, right? And she makes this point. Let me just read the beginning of the next paragraph. Uh, continue to read in that paragraph. Oh, no, next paragraph. The same belief in communion with the dead formed the cornerstone of heathen idolatry. The gods of the heathen were believed to be deified spirits of departed heroes. Thus, the religion of the heathen was a worship of the dead. Exactly. So why do you go to the dead to, to learn about or to inquire about the living? And then I thought this was really fascinating, the, the putting together of Numbers 25 and Psalm 106. Really cool. And I'll tell you something quite interesting about that. So let's just read Numbers 25, 1 to 3, which she quotes here. Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. Remember, this was the Israelites being joined to the uh, Moabitess women at Baal Peor. And so it says uh, they remained there. They began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to sacrifice to the sacrifice of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods, so Israel was joined to Baal of Peor. Okay, that's Numbers 25. Now listen to this. The psalmist tells us what kind of gods these sacrifices were offered. Speaking of the same apostasy of the Israelites, he says, she quotes now Psalm 106, 28, they joined themselves also to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices made to the dead. And then she says that is sacrifices that have been offered to the dead. Now, interestingly, I went and looked at several translations of Psalm 106, verse 28, right? They made sacrifices to the dead or offerings to the dead. And for example, the New International Version, which I've been reading occasionally lately, it says they made sacrifices to lifeless idols. Well, that's a little different, right? Like to sacrifice to a lifeless idol, a piece of wood or of metal or of stone. Okay, true. Like Dagon, remember, in the temple of the Philistines, he was tipped over and it was the crafters and makers of the God themselves that had to come and lift him back up because he has no power. He has no breath. He has no being. He's just a piece of stone that's carved or a piece of wood or whatever it is that's carved. So the NIV makes it sound like that they were simply offering to lifeless idols, and that's the critique by the psalmist in Psalm 106. But I, I went and looked at most translations, ESV, NASB, 
uh, even the NLT. I just looked at, I don't know, a dozen or more translations this morning, and most translations do not render it like the NIV. They made sacrifices to lifeless idols. They render it like she quotes here. They ate sacrifices made to the dead. Well, then that got my brain thinking. I was like, well, I wonder what the actual language is there, right? And so I went and looked it up in the Hebrew, and, and in the Hebrew, literally all it says is, ate sacrifices the dead. Ate sacrifices the dead. And so this is where you can see there is a little bit of differentiation there or a, a slight difference of opinion as to exactly what's being communicated. Were they eating sacrifices to idols that were dead? That is to say, as the NIV renders it, lifeless idols. Or do you insert the idea they ate sacrifices for the dead or to the dead? And so I think that's actually very likely the correct rendering of it. And most modern Bible translations actually capture that idea, not just to lifeless idols. That's almost uh, an unnecessary redundancy. All idols are lifeless, right? Unless you wanted to make the case that the author of Psalm 106 is making a, a, a purposeful sort of poke at the lifelessness of the idols. Okay, you could make that case, but it seems to me more persuasive that what's being said is they were literally eating sacrifices and making their offerings on behalf of or for the dead to their idols. And so I, I think that's really persuasive. And, and the larger point, of course, is, is unimpeachable. And that is that a significant part of idolatry is this idea that there is some kind of connection, communication, communion with the dead. The deification, as she says, of departed heroes. Okay, I'm turning the page now. Um, on, I'm on page 840 of Types and Symbols, 685 of the original, and we're just kind of working through uh, Ellen White's, I would say, devastating critique of the idea that God communicated to Saul uh, by Samuel, by, that was actually Samuel, and then, th then she sort of widens that to a larger critique of the whole notion of necromancy, sorcery, etc., um, right at the top of that page, there's a paragraph that begins, uh, again, 840 of the Types and Symbols, 685 of the original. The deification of the dead has held a prominent place in nearly every system of heathenism, correct, and is also the supposed, as has also the supposed communion with the dead. The supposed communion with the dead, which is exactly what we see in 1 Samuel 28. The gods were believed to communicate their will to men and also, when consulted, to give them counsel of this character were the famous oracles of Greece and Rome, right? These women that pilgrims would travel to that ostensibly could declare in their sort of ecstatic utterances, like it says there in uh, Isaiah 8, 19, uh, wizards and mediums who, who whisper and mutter. And these oracles in Greece and in Rome could ostensibly tell the future. And they would do so in these kind of, you know, incantations that themselves had to be deciphered and she's like, this is all pagan. It's all heathen. There's, there's just no grounding of this notion or this idea in the text of Scripture. In fact, not only is there no grounding of it, there is explicit condemnation of it, right? It's held in contempt. And the reason for that is, and this is probably as good a time as any, to just note, the reason for that is that the Bible teaches, and forgive me for getting a little technical here with my language, but the Bible teaches what is called anthropological monism. Anthropological monism. Monism meaning one, like mono. Mono, one. 
And so anthropological, of course, is having to do with the nature of humankind. So anthropological monism is the biblical idea that mankind is not, is not two parts. That would be Hellenistic dualism, sometimes called anthropological dualism. So you have on one side anthropological monism. Mankind, humankind, is essentially one, holistically one, absolutely one, ontologically one, and then you have the idea of Greek dualism or anthropological dualism that, that human beings are two. They are body and spirit. They are body and spirit, and that body and spirit are not only distinguishable, and this is the crucial point, but they are divisible. They're divisible, such that when the body passes away, when the body perishes, because it is mortal and material, the immaterial, immortal spirit actually continues on. And that's the essence of anthropological dualism, which was a Hellenistic idea, a Greek idea, and not it wasn't limited to the Greeks. It's basically in some form or fashion, the bedrock of most heathen perspectives, that we're not one in terms of a whole, in terms of our essence as, as fundamentally unified, we're actually bipartite. That means made up, made up of two parts. And when the one part, the mortal coil, disappears, well, then guess what? The eternal spirit, the immortal spirit continues on, and thus, just take the next step, that eternal immortal spirit can communicate with us, can communicate with the living. And she's saying, and she's correct, that's the foundation of much of heathenism, much of idolatry, and all of sorcery, right? That the dead, through their, through their eternal immortal spirit, can communicate with us. Well, the Bible doesn't teach this. The, the Bible doesn't teach this at all. And in the, what, two paragraphs later, at the bottom of that page, 840, she says that all of this, all of this human invention is a direct result of that first lie. She literally calls it that first lie that Satan whispered to Eve in the Garden of Eden, and that lie was, you shall not surely die. The idea that when you die, you don't really die. Only your mortal coil returns to the earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But you, your essence, your spirit, your immortal, eternal spirit, actually continue on uninterrupted. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. What the Bible teaches is that that God made, fashioned Adam out of the dust of the earth. He then breathed into his nostrils, and man became a living spirit. So it's not the separation of the two parts. It's the combination of the two parts, the material, that is to say, the, the physical body of Adam, combined with the breath of God, the, the ruach in the Old Testament, the pneuma in the new, the Spirit of God breathed into his nostrils, and then in a monistic way, a unified way, Adam became a living soul. Okay, when Adam died, or when any human being dies, it's not that his eternal immortal spirit whisked its way to the heavens, no. It's that the spirit that God had given, the, the enervating, um, vivifying spirit, the life-giving spirit, just returned to God. In other words, the person died. And a really great illustration that I've used many times over the years is you can just imagine like a box that's made up of wood and nails. They have wood and nails. So you, you get your wood together and you put it together with nails. So you have two things, two properties that make a kind of emergent property, the property of boxness, right? So you have your wood on this side, you have your nails on this side, and then together, when they're assembled in the right configuration, you have a box. But box is an emergent property of wood and nails being put together in a certain orientation and configuration. Okay, 
So if we then pull those nails out and we put the nails in a pile over here, we, we deconstruct the box, we put the nails over here and the wood over here, it's kind of a silly question to say, where does the box go? Well, the box doesn't go anywhere, right? It doesn't possess any kind of, you know, immaterial substance or essence that whisks away to box heaven. No, the, the box ceases to exist because the essential components of the box, namely the nails and the wood, are now no longer in the orientation that they formerly were. That's how human beings are constructed. You have the body and then you have the breath of God. When those come together uh, in the, the, the configuration that's described in Genesis, and is the case in Genesis 1 and 2, and is the case for all of us, when those are separated, our eternal immortal spirit, quote unquote, does not whisk away to heaven. No, the Bible actually says over and over again, and this is the unanimous testimony of both Old and New Testaments, the Bible likens that deconstruction, right, that decoupling of the two things that make human beings human beings, it says it's like a sleep, okay, like a sleep. The, the uh, psalmist says, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Jesus, to his friends, when he learned that Lazarus was unwell, waited three days, and then to his disciples, he said, we're going to go to Lazarus. He's sleeping, but I'm going to wake him up, to which the disciples protested and said, Lord, it's not a good idea to wake somebody that's ill or unwell up. Let him sleep. Then Jesus replied plainly in John chapter 11, Lazarus is dead. He, he had first, Jesus only reluctantly said Lazarus was dead. The first thing, his first option was to say Lazarus is asleep because that's the uniform, unanimous description of this decoupling, how this decoupling is described in scripture, asleep. For example, we've been studying through the Old Testament, so it will say that Abraham went to the cave of Machpelah, or he, was, he died and was buried in the cave of Machpelah. And then it will say that Isaac and Jacob and others, and eventually even the bones of Joseph, were brought and buried in the cave of Machpelah. And, that, and then it will use this language, they slept with their fathers. It will say this again and again in the entire Old Testament, not just with reference to the family of Abraham. They slept with their fathers. They slept with their fathers. They slept with their fathers. Well, this is not saying they went and took a nap with their dad or their granddad. It's saying they died and they were buried. They died and they were buried. They died and they were buried. And so the Bible is unambiguous about this. It's asleep. And it's not asleep in the same way that you slept last night or I slept last night. It's like asleep, okay? Because there is still, in some sense, an existence there because the, the history of you, the memory of you, it's still there. It exists in time, in the mind of God, but that decoupling of the body and the spirit is likened to asleep. And so it's important that we don't just say they're asleep. Well, they're not asleep in the sense that you and I go to sleep at night or take a nap. No, it's like asleep. It's analogous to asleep. That decoupling is the sleep. I use sleep here in quotations. And the Bible uses that language over and over again. But if, if we have this idea, this biblical idea of anthropological monism, well, then there's no reason to think that there's any, there's any sort of permanent part or enduring part of the human that could come back and speak, that could, that could return back and send a message from the other side of the veil. Ellen White uses that term quite a number of times in this chapter. The other side of the veil, the veil. On one occasion, at least, she uses the word barrier. Right? That, that's not going to happen because there is no enduring permanent substance that human beings natively possess. Now, eternal life and immortality will be given to those that believe, 
But that doesn't happen until the resurrection. Okay, let's go back briefly to the story of Lazarus, right? The raising of Lazarus. When Jesus says, your brother will rise again, Martha responds immediately. She knows this. She says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Exactly. This is, again, the uniform testimony of prophets and apostles in both the Old and the New Testament, that at the resurrection, God grants the gift of eternal life, the gift of immortality. Well, actually, eternal life is bestowed the very moment that we express faith in Jesus, but the realization or the actualization of that eternal life for those that have died happens at the resurrection. It's a very important distinction. Okay, that's not a distinction without a difference. That's a very important distinction. Distinction that We don't get eternal life at the resurrection. We get eternal life the very moment, the very nanosecond that we express faith in Jesus. Hallelujah, right? He that has the Son has life, John says in 1 John. And yet we do have that pause, that pregnant pause that we know as death, which again the Bible refers to as like a sleep. But that death is hardly anything to be afraid of and should not be confused with what the Bible calls the second death, which is eternal separation from God. Okay, so now this is the sort of underpinning, the this anthropological monism that human beings are not two parts, but one part, such that when we understand that, and when we really grasp that, there is nothing that endures or is permanent that could be communicating back to the living. And that's the point. And this is why the Bible is, again, expressly clear that you're not supposed to even attempt to communicate with the dead because, and here's the punchline, you're not communicating with the dead. An effort to do that does not put you in touch with your dead uncle or your dead father or mother or brother or sister or spouse. It actually puts you in touch with a counterfeit that might look, because remember, Satan has this capacity. He he made it look like Samuel was coming up, and he made it look like the serpents, you know, the rods had become serpents. He has some power, but what you're actually communicating with is demons. And so now let's go to the top of that next page, 841. Paragraph begins, the Hebrews were expressly, the Hebrews were expressly forbidden. This is page 686 of the original. Let me take a quick drink here. Talking so fast that my mouth is getting dry. The Hebrews were expressly forbidden to engage in any manner in pretended communion with the dead, okay? God closed this door effectually when he said, quoting Ecclesiastes 9, 5, and 6, the dead know nothing. Well, that's sufficiently clear. Nevermore will they have any share in anything done under the sun. Then she quotes Psalm 146, 4. His spirit departs, that is literally his spirit, the ruach, the breath. The ruach departs, he returns to his earth, and in that very day, his plans perish. Exactly. When you have the decoupling or the deconstruction of the two essential elements in a certain configuration to make a human being, when that happens, you have ashes to ashes, dust to dust, and the ruach, the breath, the vivifying, life-giving force simply returns back to God. Now, he will, again, send that back to his people at the resurrection, but this is exactly why the Bible says that it's like a sleep. And then she also quotes Leviticus 20, verse 6, which to me is really the most important idea here, and that is that the person who turns to mediums and familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them, I will set my face against that person and cut him off from his people. Now, just think about this for a moment here. If, in fact, if, in fact, it were possible 
Just, just imagine that everything I just said a moment ago was not true. Just imagine. So imagine that you actually could communicate with your deceased loved ones. They're in heaven and they're looking down and you through either you know direct prayer to them or through some sort of a, a conduit, a medium, could communicate with them. Then why would God forbid that? And God expressly forbids it, like in the strongest possible language. I mean, for God here to say, you know, he's cut off from his people and I set my face against them. Well, what's going on here? Is God withholding something from us? Is he saying, nanny, nanny, boo-boo, I don't want you to be able to do this? Because No. The reason that God is expressly forbidding it is that you're not doing what you think you're doing. Right? You think you're communicating with your own deceased spouse, mother, father, brother, sister, friend, but what you're actually communicating with is a counterfeit and with Satan. In fact, interestingly, the word necromancy, necro, comes from necros, which is death, and then actually the same root word as like mania, which, which in its original sort of construction actually means like to speak or to prophesy. So the word necromancy kind of means like the, the, the words of the dead or the prophesy, prophesying of the dead. No, God's not prophesying through the dead. He's prophesying through the living. That was Isaiah's point. He's like, why are you going to the dead on behalf of the living? Go to the living. And, and this actually is a point of, of real connection with the story of Saul, isn't it? Because Saul refused to go to the living Samuel. So he now tries to go, tries to, go to the dead Samuel? You almost wonder if Isaiah, in Isaiah 8.19, had this story in mind. You don't go to the dead Samuel, you go to the living Samuel. And the reason, of course, that Saul could not go to the living Samuel is that Samuel was dead. He was gone. He was in that, that, that state that the Bible refers to as like a sleep. Okay, this is all fairly clear. Uh, abundantly clear, I would say. Not just fairly clear, but abundantly clear. She then uh, talks about, uh, she quotes a number of passages to the effect that, uh, and I'll just read this kind of summarizing sentence here, in their supposed worship of the dead, uh, dead men, they were in reality worshiping demons. And she makes this really great point here that, that spiritualism entails really two things. Spiritualism entails the worship of demons, or at least communion with demons, and also, and this is the top of page 842, a denial of Jesus Christ, Right? Spiritualism often entails a denial of the uniqueness, of the specialness of Jesus, of the divinity of Jesus, of the incarnation of Jesus. Now, I don't want to go too deep into this because I don't like to shine a light on these kinds of things, but I actually had a, I actually had a friend who was super, this is before I became a Christian, who was super into spiritualism. And I, to put it mildly, I will just say that he was a troubled soul. I mean, a, a profoundly troubled soul. And again, I don't want to shine too much light on this, except to say that he would describe to me some of the, the things that he would do and the actions that he would participate in. And there is no doubt in my mind that some of what he was witnessing and sadly, some of what was happening to him was supernatural. It wasn't just a sleight of hand or a deception of his own mind. He was being harassed by demons. He was being harassed by supernatural forces. At the time, I didn't really know what was going on, but I had a real, a real sort of leeriness. I was, I, I liked him. He was a good friend, um, and we enjoyed some of the same activities. But as soon as he would start talking about this, I can't even describe 
Again, I didn't have any sort of biblical background here. I was in my early 20s. I wasn't yet a follower of Jesus. I, I would just get the hair stand up on the back of my neck, and I just had a sense, like something was speaking to me and saying, have nothing to do with this. This is evil. This is wrong. It just felt, I don't know how to say this, I felt in my spirit, do not have, don't inquire about this. He would sometimes talk about it, and I would just, oh, okay, interesting, yeah. And then I would want to talk about our mutual shared interest. I wanted nothing to do with it, and I could sense in my bones that, number one, first of all, he was deeply troubled. Number two, he was harassed by some supernatural agencies. Even back then, I knew that was the case. And then number three, I was just very aware, stay away, stay far away, and not based on the text of Scripture. God was just speaking to me. It just felt all kind of wrong. And one of the things that... that really gave me a heads up was when he would start talking about how he was regularly talking with messiahs, messiahs, plural, like Jesus's. And I remember he would he told me a number of stories because we took a long road trip together one time, he and I and a couple other friends. And, and one night in particular, we were driving through the night and, and he started talking about these things. And he said something really weird to me, like, oh, did you feel that? And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he said, oh, we just entered a, a, a field, an energy field. And I was like, I know I, I didn't feel anything. And at first I was just trying to be dismissive and cute and just change the conversation. But then he started going into talking to me about this. And that conversation led to how he's in communion with messiahs and, and what, what Jesus. And again, I was not a Christian. I, I was raised, you know, I knew about the Bible and I knew about Jesus. And I had some sort of general sense of religion but I just knew in my soul of souls that what he was saying was deeply dark and profoundly dangerous. And I was like, yeah, no, no part of it. And so when she says here that in this paragraph at the top of page 842, 687, long paragraph that begins with modern spiritualism, she describes some of the features of modern spiritualism. Yeah, I, I saw some of that in my friend. And he was a friend for a number of years. And these things would come up occasionally. But I particularly remember that night. And I was just like, ooh, I want nothing to do with this. It felt all kinds of wrong. And God was speaking to me every time he would try to talk about it. But particularly on that occasion and a couple others, I was like, nope, no, no, not interested. Don't want to learn about it. Don't want to hear about it. I was always trying to change the subject. But one of the things that he brought up was, oh, there are many messiahs. We, in fact, I, I think he even said, we all can be messiahs. We all can be like Jesus. And I was just like, even then, with basically no biblical knowledge, I was like, no, this is, this is stupid. This is wrong, and it's dark. And she makes that point here. Then she gets into how one of the sort of attractions of sorcery, necromancy, you know, these mediums, going to these mediums is for kind of the same reason that that Samuel, or that Saul went to Samuel, dead Samuel, um, counterfeit Samuel, and that is to know the future. There's this anxiety about the future. People want to know the future. And so she says here, uh, right in the middle of the paragraph that begins by the prediction of Saul's doom, the lure by which spiritualism attracts the multitudes is its pretended power to draw aside the veil from the future and reveal to men what God has hidden. 
And uh, I even remember that about my friend. He would often talk about events and how the future had been revealed to him. And I mean, I was just like, yeah, no, I don't want anything to do with it. So, so the point here, and she makes this really cool point, which I think is a fascinating point that I don't know if I've ever made in my whole life, but I like it. And that is that all this is, is a counterfeit for prophecy, right? The idea that the dead or that these wizards or sorcerers can reveal to us the future is actually a satanic counterfeit of prophecy because God has already revealed the future to the degree that he wants us to know it and wants us to understand it. Bam! Wow, that's a great point. So simple. In fact, it's so simple that you could easily miss it, that it's a counterfeit of prophecy. God knows exhaustively the future. And so he doesn't disclose to us every detail, every aspect of the future. He discloses to us what we need to know in order to help us, in order to benefit us, in order to give us courage to carry on. And so he reveals things to us like a Messiah will come and he will come under these circumstances and and that the kingdom of heaven will eventually prevail over the kingdoms of this world, right? The great prophecies, eschatological prophecies of Daniel and of Revelation. Yeah, amen. That's what we need to know. We need to know that it's going to be okay, that God is ultimately victorious. We do not need to know what's going to happen next Thursday. I, I don't need to know what's going to happen next Thursday. Why? Because what matters is not what's going to happen next Thursday. What matters is that I put my trust in the God who knows what's going to happen next Thursday and the Thursday after that, and the Thursday after that, and the Thursday after that. So I really appreciated her point that this seeking for the knowledge behind the veil is actually born out of, in many cases, an anxiety about the future. Well, we don't have to have anxiety about the future because while we don't know what the future holds, again, we can know who holds the future. And that's far more important. There's this great poem that was... Um, Years ago, I read, and it was this idea that, that we should place our hand in the hand of God. It will be better than the known, better, better and safer than the known. To place your hands in the hand of God is better and safer than to know the future. And there have been a lot of Hollywood movies over the years that have been made about this idea that, that people know the future, they can see the future, they can travel to the future. And all of that, I suppose, is kind of interesting as, a, as an experiment, as a thought experiment. What if we, you know, Michael J. Fox, Back to the Future? It's kind of interesting, right? But at the end of the day, you know, this is just entertainment, right? These are just like thought experiments about what if I knew, like people will say, what if you knew you were going to die one year from today? What would you do differently? That kind of a thing. And yeah, I think it is actually quite healthy for us to be continually mindful of our own mortality and of our limited number of days on this earth. I think that's actually a good and healthy thing right? Like we should be mindful of what season we are at in our life so that we can plan accordingly, right? And I don't just mean like plan for your retirement. I mean, plan the things that God is trying to do in you and through you at that stage in your life. And then at this stage in your life. And then at this, Violetta and I, for example, are just coming into a totally new chapter in our lives, right? Our oldest son is away at college. Our youngest son will graduate this year. And then our sons will be out of the home. Well, that'll be a new chapter for us. For more than 20 years, our lives will have been wrapped up with sons and, and our lives revolved like a large part of our lives. Let's say we live to be 80. So 25% of our life revolved was that chapter. Well, now there's a new chapter and we should not try to pretend that we're living when we're still in our 20s and our 30s when we're in our late 40s and early 50s, right? So I think that's actually healthy. It's, it's good to be thinking about the, the transience of life and the temporality of life 
and of our own, the chapters and seasons in which we are. We should be mindful of our own mortality. I actually read a book recently, a really good book by Atul Gawande, titled um, Being Mortal. Very good book, sort of on the science and the, the how it is that people age and what death looks like um, in, in terms of like sort of a collective, it's basically on aging and death. It's a fascinating book. Highly recommend it. Atul Gawande. And so, yeah, she basically points out that a lot of this is a, just born out of anxiety about the future. Uh, then she goes on to say that um, they would give, uh, da, 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 let me say, if they would but trust in God and watch in prayer, they would find divine consolation. Exactly. Put your hand in the hand of God. It'll be better and safer than the known, than knowing the future. That's far better. Their spirit would be calmed by communion with God. The weary and heavy laden would find rest in their souls, and they would go, they would only go to Jesus, if they would only go to Jesus. Exactly. Go to Jesus. It's far better to know Jesus than to know the future. Far better to know Jesus than to know the future. The future, I think, if we could somehow see it, and again, movies have been made about this, would actually be horrifying to us. It would be, because... We're not capacitated in this moment to, to know the whole future of our lives. I mean, Jesus said, don't even worry about tomorrow. And tomorrow, by definition, is the future. So that's how incapacitated we are. That's how incapable we are of dealing with the future. Jesus said, don't even worry about tomorrow. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. You just worry about the present, right? Because you don't have what I have. You don't have shoulders broad enough and a mind large enough to understand the future. So just put your hand in my hand. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. You don't have the future, but I have the future. And I can tell you this, I am victorious, right? It's like the bumper sticker. I have read the book and God wins, right? That's what we need to know. And But I really liked this paragraph. I want to read the paragraph that says, shall those, shall those who have a holy God, infinite in wisdom and power, go unto wizards? whose knowledge comes from intimacy with the enemy of our Lord? She's asking these open-ended rhetorical questions. The answer, of course, is a resounding no. That's stupid, right? That's the same question that Isaiah is asking in Isaiah 8, 19. Should we go to these wizards who peep and mutter? Wouldn't we rather go to God, right? Why should we seek for the seek the dead on behalf of the living, right? So she continues here. God himself is the light of his people. He bids them to fix their eyes by faith, upon the glories that are veiled from human sight. The sun of righteousness sends its bright beams into their hearts. They have light from the throne of heaven, and they have no desire to turn away from the source of light to the messengers of Satan. Amen, and amen, and amen. Uh, just one more point I want to make here is, I thought this was quite fascinating. This is on the paragraph that, um, I guess it's the second to the last paragraph. The second to the last paragraph begins, Satan was determined. I thought this was really interesting. One final word on this. Um, Satan was determined to keep his hold on the land of Canaan. And when it was made the habitation of the children of Israel and the law of God was made the law of the land, he hated Israel with a cruel and malignant hatred and plotted their destruction. Through the agency of evil spirits, strange gods were introduced. And because of transgression, the chosen people were finally scattered from the land of promise. And when I read this, I was like, wow, that is so interesting that Satan laid a territorial claim to the land of Canaan. 
right? He claimed that land territorially as his own. And it reminded me that through the whole of Scripture, Satan is making territorial claims, right? He's laying claim to places. He's laying claim to the earth itself. He lays claim to human bodies. You might remember when Jesus came to the land of the Gadarenes and he encountered those two demoniacs there. They basically say, why have you come here? Who are you? We know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. Have you come to torment us before the time? Why are you here? This is our plot. This is our patch, right? And Satan has been making territorial claims. In fact, if you want to listen to a great sermon, it's an old sermon. I actually, Ty Gibson and I, oh, probably 10 years ago, we did an interview on 3ABN titled Territorial Forces. If you can get your hands on that interview, you should listen to it. It was a two-hour conversation between Ty and myself and the host about this very idea that Satan makes territorial claims. And we actually got into this a little bit with John Peckham, where we went to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 and 9, where it kind of describes the division of the land territorially. And uh, anyway, that interview that I did with Ty more than a decade ago, titled Territorial Forces, we go into detail this idea that Satan makes territorial claims. He then sets up idols that the Bible says in Psalm, what is it, 106, are actually demons masquerading as idols, and they make territorial claim to certain areas, to certain nations, and to certain human bodies. Remember Jesus in Luke chapter 13 said, ought not this woman, right, or is this Luke 10 maybe, Luke 10 or Luke 13, ought not this woman being a child of Abraham whom Satan has bound, right? And then back to the story of the demoniacs and the Gadarenes, we are legion. We own this body. We own this place. Fascinating. So if you can't find that interview that Ty and I did titled Territorial Forces, I couldn't find it on YouTube, but maybe if you do a little digging around, you could find it. It was literally just titled Territorial Forces. But I did see that on YouTube, there was a sermon that Ty Gibson preached oh, five years ago titled Territorial Forces. And um, I'm sure he covers a lot of the same material. But I just thought that was so interesting that he, this was his land, this was his patch, a little bit like a dog that makes a territorial claim, right? <laughs> by, to, you know, to take the analogy to a, a, maybe a bit of a crass place, but by peeing on things, he says, you know, this is my tree and this is my fire hydrant and this is my, Satan made a territorial claim in Canaan. And so when Israel came in and occupied that land, she says here that this really goaded Satan. It deeply frustrated him because he had he had ceded land. He had lost territory. I mean, this is really what happens in the book of Job, right? Scholars have noted, and I think, again, John Peckham makes this point in our supplemental session, which you should definitely go and watch if you haven't already. Um, the idea that when it says, not just once, but twice, both in Job 1 and in Job 2, when God questions Satan about his appearance at this divine council, Satan says, I've, I've come from the earth walking to and fro on it. And scholars are in significant agreement here that that idea of walking to and fro was a territorial claim. Wandering around my planet, wandering around my patch, wandering around what belongs to me. And so very interesting here that when God, as it were, drove a stake, the stake of his divine law, the stake of his covenant people into the heart of a territory that Satan had claimed generationally. 
for centuries as his own. Remember the, the words there by God to Abraham in Genesis 15, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. I mean, the, the, the prostitution, the temple prostitution, the child sacrifice, the things that were happening there were so dark, so tragic, so terrible, so demonic and satanic, Satan said, this is my territory. And this is why, of course, to state the obvious, God said these people and their places of worship have to be completely extirpated from the land. He even said, don't take the names of these gods on your lips. And when you come to one of their religious sites, one of their altars, don't inquire about how they worshiped or what it is that they did. Don't let your curiosity get the best of you. Just destroy these places. And if the people don't retreat before you as you're possessing the land, if they're not dispossessed, destroy them. These people were so far gone into Satan worship, into demon worship. There was so much darkness there. Satan claimed this. And what, what, what God did was is he drove a stake of the divine presence in God's covenant people and in his law into the heart of Satan's territory, right? It was like an invasion. And she says that Satan hated this. And so he waged a war against the children of Israel in order to make their worship and their rebellion such that there was no distinction, fascinating, no distinction between them and the tribes that had formerly occupied that land. And then she says, this is her punchline, she says, we have to be careful that we don't, like Israel of old, be scattered and lose our inheritance. I mean, literally, I'll just read it here. The antitypical land of promise, that is to say the new heaven and the new earth, is just before us. And Satan is determined to destroy the people of God and cut them off from their inheritance. Man, that is a fascinating theological application. That, that just as they were scattered from the land of promise because they became like the other nations in their worship of idols and in their participation in, you know, some of these things that we're describing in this chapter, she says they were driven up. They lost their inheritance. And she says, don't let the same happen to us. Wow, that is a great, great point. And so then the final paragraph in the chapter, the word of the Lord to ancient Israel is addressed also to his people in this age. And she quotes Leviticus 1930, 31 and Deuteronomy 18:12. Give no regard to mediums and familiar spirits. Do not seek after them to be defiled by them, for all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. Why? Why the strong language? Well, because you're not talking to your deceased loved one. You're literally communing as Saul did when he went to the witch at Endor with satanic agencies. And God says, don't do it. Don't do it. So I really liked this chapter, Ancient and Modern Sorcery. I thought it was an excellent introduction to many ideas, anthropological monism, the idea of territorialism, spiritualism, um, the uh, uniqueness and divinity of Jesus. There's a lot at stake here, right? It's not just like, well, you know, you believe, you say tomato, I say tomato. You say potato, I say potato. It's not that. It's not just like, well, you believe that when you die, you sleep the sleep of death and await the resurrection. And I believe that when you die, you go straight to heaven. You know, it's no real difference. Actually, there is a difference. Because believing that when you die, you sleep the sleep of death and await the resurrection, in that decoupling, there is no opportunity. There's not even a temptation to try and commune with the dead because you know, you know that it's not the dead that you're communing with. It's Satan. And so you are insulated from even the possibility of doing that. You, you would, it doesn't make any sense. But at least on the other view, you know, the idea that, you know, my eternal, immortal spirit 
transcends this world and is whisked away to the presence of God, that at least leaves the door open, and in some theologies, wide open to the idea that we can communicate with the dead, something that the Bible expressly and unanimously and vigorously forbids. So there's a lot at stake here, and I thought it was an excellent chapter, very well written, very well communicated, and let's get quickly to the rubric, all right? Uh, the point, the person, the prayer, the practice, and the promise. The point to give the biblical theological background of Saul's visit, Saul's ill-advised and unwise visit to the witch at Endor. Bam. Uh, the person. What do we learn about God from this chapter? Well, how about this? To state the obvious, God does not communicate with us, with his people, or with anybody else, through the dead via sorcerers and mediums and necromancers. God's not doing that. If that's happening, and it's not just sleight of hand or trickery or self-deception, it's a supernatural power, yes, but it's not God. It's his enemy. It's the other supernatural power. How do we pray this chapter? Here's what I wrote. Father, teach me. I wrote my. Teach me. Quickly adjust that. Father, teach me to trust the unknown future to a known God. Bam. Hallelujah. Father, teach me how to trust you, <laughs> to trust the unknown future to a known God. I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future, right? I want to put my hand in the hand of God. It's better and safer than knowing the future. Uh, how do we practice this chapter? Well, I want to study and to know the Word of God, Scripture, and I want to teach others the truth about biblical anthropology, the divinity of Jesus, spiritualism, etc. Right? Like, go to the text, to the law and to the testimony. If they don't speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And this is why it's so essential, especially because the last days, one of the features of the last days will be that miracles will be increasing. And these miracles will be fascinating and intriguing and interesting and in many cases persuasive. So we have to know what the text of Scripture says so that if we're confronted with a miracle that contradicts or contravenes Scripture and Scripture, we say, you know what? I'm going to go with Scripture. I'm going to go with the text. Well, the only way you can go with the text over and against the experience of your own senses, particularly seeing or witnessing the miraculous, is if you know the text. You got to know the text, friends. And so the way you practice this chapter is get into the text of Scripture. Make at least as much time reading and studying the Bible as you do watching Netflix, right? <laughs> amen and amen. That's why we do, one of the big reasons that we do, the OT with DA Challenge and the DA with DA Challenge, it's to get people into the text to learn how to read the Bible and how to understand Scripture and how to understand the narrative flow of the text. Bam. Um, okay, and so what is God's promise? I actually went with the promise of, I just quoted it, but I'll read it here from the text. My promise was Isaiah 8, 20. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20. Let me get there quickly. Here it is. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20 says, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. You say, well, that doesn't sound very much like a promise. No, it is a promise. Because what it's saying, the implication of the text is there's no light in them if they don't speak according to the law and the testimony, but there is abundant light in the text. 
right? She calls him the son of righteousness at the close of this chapter, whose bright beams shed the light of God's goodness, the light of God's love and providence into the world through prophecy, through his word, through Jesus. So friends, this word is filled with light. It's filled with truth. It's filled. Somebody says, I'm not a Netflix fan. Neither am I. I don't have a Netflix. I've never had a Netflix account and have no, I've never had any streaming service account. I don't have Netflix. I don't have HBO. I don't have Hulu. I don't have Disney. Certainly. I don't have any of that stuff. I, I mean, I might, I'm busy enough, you know, rock climbing and teaching and preaching and reading and walking on the beach with my wife. I, I don't have time to watch things. I mean, occasionally you have a little downtime and you might watch a movie with your friends, but uh, I'm not in a position where I would be paying a monthly subscription for something that I would basically never use. So yeah, I'm not a Netflix fan either. If you are a Netflix fan, I'm not judging you. I'm just saying it doesn't fit into my life, right? I have things, especially at 49 years old, I'm almost 50, right? I got a lot I still want to accomplish in the next, you know, two or three decades of my life. Uh, should time last and should God, you know, graciously grant me that many decades, I don't, I don't have any time to be watching Netflix. I, I have, I got stuff to do. I got, I got people to tell about Jesus. I got projects. I got books to write. So anyway, hopefully you too are spending the majority of your time doing things that are more consequential and more constructive than just watching movies. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that. That was a great lesson. Tomorrow, chapter 68, back to the narrative-based um, chapters, David at Ziklag. Well, that's fun to say. David at Ziklag. So that's where we'll be tomorrow. Let's close with prayer, and uh, thank you all for tuning in. Father in heaven, we love you, and we thank you for the light that is in the Word and the light that is in Jesus. Jesus is the light that lights every man that comes into the world. And Father, I'm so thankful that so many years ago when my friends started talking about those dark and mysterious and spiritualistic type things that I just that you spoke to me through the hair on the back of my neck and just through a sense, stay away, avoid, do not express interest. And Lord, I'm just so happy that through your providence and through your goodness, you steered me uh, to your word and to your people. And Father, I'm just so happy. I'm so happy that the son of righteousness, the S-U-N, the son of righteousness, that the rays of the son of righteousness are shining upon us, shining upon me, shining upon the world, Father, help us to, to, to receive the vitamin D that's available to us, the spiritual vitamin D, as we make ourselves, as we expose ourselves, as we make ourselves available to the Son of Righteousness. Father, help us to soak up all of that sunshiny goodness. Help us to live in the light of your love and your goodness and to turn away from all manifestations of darkness, all of these counterfeits. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, that reminds me. As I was praying, I said my word, and I forgot my word. <laughs> oh, I knew I'd forgot something. All right, hey, there's people giving their word here. My word is counterfeit. Isn't that so funny? As I was praying, I said the word counterfeit in my prayer, and then I realized, hey, uh, you might want to do the word. People are going crazy here. What's your word? What's your word? My word is counterfeit. Counterfeit. Okay, here's the words. Counterfeit, sleep, counterfeit, 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 ruin, word. Oh, I guess you're asking for my word. Malignant. Oh, good word. Warning. Light. <laughs> it's so funny to see people losing their minds here. Sorry about that. Light. Testimony. One. 
Oh, I like what Sylvia does here. Vitamin D. We need that spiritual vitamin D. Discernment. Oh, that's hot. That is hot. Um, let's see. My word is consolation. Oh, very good, Megan. Found in Jesus. Oh, counterfeit was your word, Sylvia. Excellent. Light. Necromania, says Ruby. That's quite a word. Counterfeit. People are laughing at me here. Yeah, yeah, I forgot. I guess I just had one foot out the door, ready to go teach it a rise. Seducing, lies, misled, counterfeit. Scripture. Deb says, you can't change our format. Yeah, I'm sorry. That was a mistake. I think that might be the first time I ever forgot the word and then remembered it in my prayer. Oh, Terry says, I can't use counterfeit. I already used it. Yeah, it's funny how that works, isn't it? Like I'm now, when I, when I choose a word, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I need to go back and look and see if I've already used that word. In fact, just the other day, I really wanted to use the word influence, but then I realized I'd already used the word influence. So, and I think that was the day that I used the word bloodshed, which I think was actually a better word than influence. Um, oh, Frank says, love the t-shirts. Have some of you gotten your shirt? This is my Arise t-shirt, by the way. They just gave me a new one because I wear them out. Have you, uh, have some people received their shirts? If you've received your shirts, take a picture of you wearing your shirt and put it up on uh, using the OT with DA hashtag. I'd love to see it because I'm not going to be back in the US for almost a month. And so I, 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 I told them, hold on to my shirts. Uh, mail them when I get there. Oh, somebody says their word was veil or veiled. Good word. She uses that word quite a number of times. Frank says he got a shirt today. Bam, take a picture. Use the OT with DA hashtag. I, I want to see what they look like. I hope they're really high quality. We've never used this company before. I mean, we've only ever done this one other time. But um, yeah, I, I'm really excited about this company, Farm Fresh Clothing. They're expensive, but they're American-made and organic and environmentally friendly dyes. I mean, it's not for making money anyway. It's for creating community. So hopefully they're awesome. All right. Love you all. I'm out of here. I'll see you tomorrow. Same time, same place. And by the grace of God, tomorrow, I won't forget the word. Have a great day.